0: Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the ObsPod pod is for you. Episode 24, Language, Part 2. Today I'm going to follow on from last week's episode and discuss language. And problems with language and communication in maternity care. Today I'm going to address jargon and abbreviations. Of course we don't necessarily talk in jargon. Most of us are sensible enough to try and translate what we're saying into plain English. But we also need to think about what we document or write in the notes. We expect women to carry their maternity notes this is unlike any other aspect of medical care I can think of. She holds her medical record literally in her hands, not the hospital. So why is most of what we write in them unintelligible to her? Let's take a straightforward antenatal check. We might write some of the following. 39 plus 4. Kef, two fifths. BP, 128 slash 70. Urine, NAD, FHH, FMF plus. As I say that, it sounds like a load of nonsense. What we're trying to say is that the woman is 39 weeks and four days. The baby is cephalic, or kef, head down. And this comes from Latin and Greek. The two fifths How far the head is descended into the pelvis to engage has the widest bit of the baby's head gone down into the pelvis. NAD stands for nothing abnormal discovered, so that means her urine is clear. FHH, fetal heart heard. FMF plus, fetal movements felt. I hadn't really thought about What that might be like for a woman to see that in her notes. Until someone once said to me at a workshop, What does FMF plus mean? And I explained it meant fetal movements felt. And she said, Why can't you just say baby active or active baby? And that one comment and that one interaction has changed my documentation. I always now write baby active if a baby is active and write a more descriptive term if the baby is not. I don't write FMF plus anymore. Abbreviations are sometimes used to save time, but actually writing baby active, that's just as quick and easy as FMF plus. Fetal heart heard. Often I now document what is the rate of the fetal heart rather than just FHH. But I do still write cephalic or kef, because that is the medical documentation about the baby being head down. And I will still write about fifths and BP blood pressure. But as we write, we can explain to the woman what we're writing and why. And this can sometimes be a useful way of sense checking the consultation, making sure that you have correctly understood what has been agreed and that the woman definitely has understood and agreed with what you're writing. So often I will write something in the notes and then read it back to the woman to check that she agrees that that's an accurate record of our conversation. Let's take some other common abbreviations we might use. Some of our interventions, perhaps. ARM. This stands for artificial rupture of membranes, breaking the waters. So, when I write in the notes that a woman is being admitted for an ARM, I could write breaking the waters, couldn't I? It doesn't take a lot of effort to write something a little bit differently once you have successfully thought of the alternative. The problem is that these abbreviations become like a language that we understand and the woman doesn't. And that becomes very obvious when we start to teach students, medical students arriving on the ward. We've just welcomed them back after the first coronavirus surge. It's a delight to have them back and their fresh view, their fresh questions about the abbreviations we use take us back to actually we're talking in a language that's making things inaccessible. And some of the abbreviations become vocabulary. So we might talk about I've ARM'd this woman. Artificial rupture of membranes, remember, is what it means. So how can you artificial rupture of membranes, d arm what we're saying is we have ruptured the membranes or broken the waters, so why not say so? Shrom is another one. That's spontaneous rupture of membranes or waters broken. So we m- might say she shromed yesterday at 8pm. There's no good reason for using that sort of language and it doesn't harm anyone. But when you think about power, and there inevitably is power in the relationship when you're a professional caring for a woman, then having a, a language that only some of the people understand is part of that potential power play. Sometimes abbreviations can be confusing. IOL in maternity means induction of labour. It would be obvious to us what IOL is. This woman's being admitted for an IOL. It was only when I started to do some work in other parts of the hospital that I discovered that there are other meanings. For example, in the eye hospital, IOL, intraocular lens. So the other thing about abbreviations is they can lead to confusion What you understand from that abbreviation may be not what another person understands. And yes, it's unlikely you're going to muddle up a woman in maternity with a patient in the eye hospital. But actually, how clear is it? How safe is it if we're using such abbreviations? ECV is another one. External cephalic version. That's about turning a baby to head down. The baby may be breech, bottom down. External relates to it being outside the woman. As a woman, you might find that surprising. Obviously, we would be trying to turn the baby from outside you. But actually, that's opposed to internal pedalic version, which is actually trying to turn a baby with a hand inside the womb, sometimes done for birth of a second twin or during a cesarean operation. So ECV, external cephalic version. And that is the correct medical terminology. But we could talk to women about turning their baby to head down, making that language more accessible. Moving away from abbreviations, there are also words that we use, normal words, but what they mean in the maternity context may be different. An example of this might be engaged. If you look up engaged in the dictionary, it means pledged to be married, betrothed. Yet for us in maternity, engaged means the widest part of the baby's head is now in the pelvis, in the pelvic inlet. The baby's head is engaged, it has moved down. Other examples might be station. No, I don't mean a train station. I mean the station of the head in relationship to the ischial spines, part of the pelvis. So, we talk about whether the baby's head is above the spines or below the spines. So, as labour progresses, the baby's head gradually moves down. So, the station, so called, goes from being a minus number, perhaps minus two or minus one, to being a plus number, plus one or plus two, by the time the baby is about to be born. Even the word term, a fixed period of time, you might see it as term time in school. For us, term means the duration of a normal pregnancy, anything from 37 to 42 weeks, term. Another word I find a bit odd when I try and explain it to women is a sweep. To carry out a membrane sweep, you examine a woman with your fingers and if the cervix is open, Sweep your finger around the cervix. This helps release the woman's natural hormones or prostaglandins, which may make them more likely to go into labour. And there is good evidence for this. And it is something I would always suggest doing before carrying out a more formal induction. But to explain to women, would you like a sweep? Or what a sweep is? Just sounds very strange. Sweep. Sweeping with a broom? What are we talking about? Moving on to some jargon, there are some words and phrases that we use that impart important clinical information, but are possibly not the best way of describing things for women. An example of this might be intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR. This means that the baby's growth is slowing down. The growth velocity is reduced. It's important for us to know that and a cause might be what we call placental insufficiency. The placenta is not working as well as it ideally could be. This baby is probably not reaching its genetic potential. I don't have answers as to what the best terminology is for all these phrases. We could say a small baby or a baby whose growth is slowing down a little bit. But talking about IUGR and placental insufficiency, I think that would worry me if I wasn't medical and I didn't understand. Yet we might write it down. It might be on a scan report. It might be an indication for an intervention so it's important to think about its impact. We also have to be careful when we use abbreviations that we don't get sloppy. People write CS, cesarean. People often write LSCS for cesarean, and the reason for that is that the most common sort of cesarean is a lower segment cesarean section. That's where the incision is horizontally in the lower segment of the womb. This is the most common sort of surgery and the least risky in a future pregnancy or labour. But if we routinely describe a caesarean as an LSCS, then we might miss that woman who actually didn't have that sort of incision. Yes, she had a caesarean, but she had a different sort of incision on the womb which could be for many different reasons or could be because the surgery was done in a different country where obstetric practice may be different. So if we sloppily write LSCS for every sort of cesarean, we could make mistakes. Another piece of jargon, which is important medical information but can be opaque to women, is parity. Talking about parity, we're talking about whether this is this woman's first baby, second baby, and how many pregnancies she's had. So we might say this woman is gravida one, paranaut. That means gravida, one pregnancy, paranaut hasn't given birth to her baby yet. So that is this woman's first baby. A woman might be gravida four and naught if she's had several miscarriages. So she's had four pregnancies, but she's not yet got a live baby. This is important information for us as doctors and midwives. There are some conditions that are more common in a first pregnancy or a first pregnancy that is going to full term. And there are issues in labour that are more common with a first birth and first labour versus women who perhaps had multiple babies in the past. So this gravida parity is very important, whether a woman is primoparous having her first labour or multiparous having had labour before. We know from how we care for women and from published data that women labour very differently in their first labour to any subsequent labour. But there are also conditions that are more common in women who've had several babies before. So it's very important information for us and we need that documented in the notes and I don't have a good way of translating that for women, but it is really important detail. Where this can become problematic is when we then apply a label to it. For example, in one of the workshops we held, one of the examples of language that came up as problematic was an elderly primigravida. The definition of this, the definition of this if you look at a textbook, is a woman who is more than 35 years old who is pregnant for the first time. If you look back in time, there was an article in 1975 in the BMJ all about the age of marriage, the age of having a first baby. And at that time, 35 was deemed pretty old to be having a baby, and certainly a first baby. Given the average age of a mother is now 28 and a half in the UK, actually, this age of 35 being classified as elderly, apart from the fact the term elderly might be offensive, is somewhat nonsensical. In my unit, we now think about women who are over 40 as being in a slightly older age group. Is age important? Are we being ageist? Actually, age is important. There are different risks if a woman is 40 or older. Obviously, it might depend whether she's just 40 or whether she's 45. But actually, yes, there are things that we need to think about. In my unit, we've moved our label to being maternal age. We might offer induction with an indication of maternal age. Maternal age, it's less offensive, but actually all women have an age. So maternal age is a bit of a a stupid phrase, I guess. And we don't want women to feel we're judging them for their age. Actually, we have six or seven percent of our mothers having their babies in their 40s in my unit due to the demographics of our population. So we're very used to looking after women in that age group and a lot of them have very uncomplicated pregnancies. So we do need to think about age and individualise the care we give women. But do we need to label them in this way? Back to elderly primagravida, when it cropped up, actually someone had misunderstood and misheard and thought it was an elderly primate. So actually, one of our graphic facilitators drew the most beautiful illustration of a monkey having a baby. We don't always understand when we say something, quickly in passing, what the woman receives and hears. How would you like to be told you're not only elderly, but you're an ape? Obviously, that's an extreme example of a misunderstanding, But if we don't use language that women can understand, and if we stick wedded to our medical language, these misunderstandings are going to be more commonplace. So thinking about the zesty bit, try and document in such a way that is transparent and intelligible to the woman, as well as professionals. If you can't, then show women what you've documented and try and explain what it means. Sometimes I will read out what I've recorded in the notes at the end of a consultation to ensure that the woman and I both agree what has been said and that she's understood and it's her chance to speak up, question or disagree and ask for amendments. This is the least we can do when it's the woman's care we're talking about and we're expecting her to carry her notes. Occasionally, I've seen women write in their notes, correcting something or questioning something. And sometimes that's received with shock, almost, how dare she write in her notes? But actually, they're her notes. They're about her. So although we need to have medical notes that are clear so that the right care is provided, actually, why shouldn't she write in her notes or query things? They're about her. I hope these two episodes about language have been interesting. As I said last week, I can't possibly discuss every single point of language, but I hope it's given you a flavour of some of the things and some of the issues that I've come across or think about in my daily practice. There are many things we could do. There are many things we could change. We can't do everything all at once, but at least we could make a bit of a start And make sure that we're trying to avoid jargon. We're trying not to use all those abbreviations. And we're trying to improve the understanding between us and the women we're caring for. So I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the OBS pod. If you have, do like, subscribe or leave a review. And join me again to explore more about the life of an NHS obstetrician. I'm finding it really exciting to have people listening and give me feedback about what they've found interesting. So please do recommend the Obspod to other friends, colleagues, or people who you think might find it interesting. I'd love it if you'd share with me what you've enjoyed about listening and if you've done anything differently as a result. I can be found on Twitter at FWMaternity and at the ObsPod. And please do check the MATEXP hashtag, hashtag #MATEXP and the website matexp.org.uk for more information and ideas on how to improve women's experience of maternity care. Finally I'd like to reassure you that I take confidentiality very seriously and although I'm talking about experiences from my working life I'm taking great pains to make sure that I anonymise the stories and talk in more general terms so that I keep confidentiality of my women I currently care for and have cared for in the past very safe. Many thanks for listening.